You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. John chapter 13. Our focus today will be on verses 21 through 38. I'll be reading John 13, 12 through 38. Gospel of John chapter 13, beginning with verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Not speaking to all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek Me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Jesus said to him, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy. Grant that the Spirit of Christ would draw near to us now, opening and exposing the souls of both pretend disciples who harbor betrayal in their hearts, and any true disciples. who have found this week once more they've denied, they've fumbled. Expose, expose who we are. And then knowing that, show us your son. That for any here that they've just been pretending and they fooled everyone. May they see Christ today and think, how could I ever betray Him? For money, for anything. And bow and be washed clean. And for those who have fallen... May we hear our Savior say, right now you will deny me, but afterward you will follow me. You'll be where I am. And in confidence, not in ourselves, but our Lord and His promise, may we walk forward with new boldness to live unto you in all things. In Christ's name we pray now. Amen. John 13 sets the stage, the backdrop for the entirety of the upper room discourse, which begins at this point, that is crowned by Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. So everything from this point forward to John 17, the stage is being set here. As we turn the beginning of this discourse from Jesus' public ministry to this private instruction that happens in this upper, upper room, you sense from the very beginning there is an intimacy that's unsurpassed in all the gospel accounts that happens with Jesus' disciples in this upper room. You sense it from the very beginning as He's washing their feet. And it's sustained throughout these chapters. 
And I think this is one reason why these chapters are so dear and so precious to the saints today. Here, we too have intimate communion with our Lord. These chapters open up to us the heart of Christ. Calvin said all of them, the Gospels, all of them have the same object in view, to point out Christ. The three former exhibit His body, if we may be permitted to use the expression, but John exhibits His soul. Here we have not only the soul of our Lord opened up for us to see, we have the soul of our Lord opened up towards us, His disciples. And not only that, we have the disciples' souls opened up for us as well in this account. Here we see one disciple who will betray Him. Another who leans back against the breast of His Lord. And a third who will deny Him. By this, we see not only something of these disciples and their souls, we see something of ourselves. John opens telling us that once more Jesus was troubled, verse 21. Why was He troubled? Throughout His earthly ministry, as John presents it, Jesus so often seems so collected, calm, in control, despite volatile hostility, tangible hostility, or even uh, uninformed zeal to make Him the Messiah. But beginning with Lazarus, as Jesus has returned to Judea, and His disciples had said things like, well, let's go die with Him. That's what's in view as He's returned. As he, as he comes back to Judea with His death in focus, and the death and resurrection of Lazarus, we read, 11.33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. I think there were other days of trouble in Jesus' life. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. I think that's why you see him so often withdraw to an isolated place to commune with his father. But John waits until we approach the cross to repeatedly tell us Jesus was troubled. John 12, 27, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Now in John 12, the trouble of spirit there has in view the cross in general. We might say particularly it would have in view the taking of the cup of wrath from the Father's hand and drinking it in our stead. But here... The trouble of soul, I think, is very focused. Jesus is troubled in soul after saying these things. And He's troubled in a spirit, we read, and testified. So after having said something, we're told He's troubled. And then He goes on to say something. And what's on both sides, what Jesus has said and what Jesus will say, relates to the betrayal of one of these disciples. 
He's told us after having washed their feet, not all of them are clean. One of them will lift up his heel against him. One of them will betray him. And then he goes on to tell the disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And this troubles our Lord. Behold something here of his tender humanity. One of them will betray him. And it troubles him. As Lord, He with the Father has eternally willed this betrayal. And as a man, it troubles Him. It stings. We don't have to strain to see how David's pain anticipated that of our Lord, which he just quoted, Psalm 41 verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. We don't need to take broad poetic license to see how the king's betrayal in Psalm 41 is fulfilled by his son here, his Lord. In His divine nature, our Lord is impassable. It's not a doctrine that gets discussed often enough. It means He's without passions, impassable. The idea is that, not that He doesn't have uh, love or, or anger. The idea that is that our God is not moved by forces outside Himself. Your sin doesn't put God in a bad mood. Our God has never struggled with anxiety. He doesn't look upon sinful humanity and and wring His hands or pull out His hair. Our God is impassable. In His divine nature, our Lord remained immutably impassable, without change. He is not moved. He moves all. Our God is in the heaven. He does all that He pleases, and all that He pleases, He does. His joy is indestructible. I think the incarnate Son gives us some glimpse into this whenever He tells the disciples in chapter 11, I'm glad that Lazarus is dead and not just sleeping. It speaks to His Divine sovereignty over the whole situation and his joy being unscathed by this. He is doing as he pleases. Because our God needs no comfort, he is the God of all comfort. And he can comfort us. But our Lord Jesus, remaining what he was, God, became what he was not, man. One person, two natures, while His divine nature remained impassable. Our Lord, in His humanity, was troubled in spirit. He was troubled in His human spirit. And He's troubled because one of these disciples, one of the twelve, one of those whom He's spent all these years with, one of these with whom He has spent these years laughing, teaching, eating, walking, Sharing, rebuking, communing with one of these will betray him and it stings. 
It troubles him. His close friend betrays him. And the disciples are obviously troubled at this as well. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Matthew records, and they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Matthew 26, 22. John shows us there's not just a self-concern, there is an other concern. Who is it they want to know? They're not simply concerned, is it I, but who is it? And so as they look at one another, we see that they're uncertain of whom he speaks. In John 12, 6, we were told that Judas has charge of the money bag and that he helped himself to it. That's all said in retrospect. No one has a clue at this point. Judas enjoys not just this special place as one of the twelve. He has charge of the money bag and no one suspects a thing. They are uncertain of whom Jesus speaks. Even whenever Judas leaves, this is how unsuspecting they were. When Judas leaves, no one had the thought, oh, now we know. No. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Saints, there has been and there will be betrayal in the church. And it will come from the most unlikely of places. You will never guess where apostasy and betrayal might arise. It might even be a minister that God has greatly used for good. It will sting. It will trouble your soul. It will confuse. It will befuddle. But take this comfort. Our Lord knew such betrayal. He was troubled by it, knowing where it would come from. He was troubled by it, ordaining that it come. And in contrast then to this betrayer, you have the disciple who Jesus loved Reclining at his side. It really is a Western way of translating something, uh, a kind of masculinity that we're uncomfortable with. The ESV has as a footnote the Greek, reclining at the bosom of Jesus. The language for reclining at meal tells us that. Uh, at least for special feasts, as it's often used in the Gospels in reference to, the Jews had adopted the Greek custom of not sitting but reclining to eat. You would lay on your uh, left side and you would be like petals of a flower around a central table. There would be these cushions arranged in a U-shape. 
and you would recline your legs jutting out using your right hand to eat. And so John has this position next to Christ. Peter can see John, he's not right next to Jesus, and he's, he doesn't say anything in an incredible display of self-control for Peter. He doesn't say anything, but he motions for John because he, he recognizes there's something about what Jesus is saying here that it has to be a kind of intimate question. So he asks John to ask who it is. And Jesus answers, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. I think everything in this context indicates that this was said privately to John. If anyone knew who it was, I think John was the only one. I don't know if he was in the dark or not, but I think indications are, as far as what the sign would be, only John heard this. We have questions But I think what's important is to notice what the text is drawing your attention to here. You have two men enjoying incredible... All of them have this intimate communion in this upper room. He's just washed their feet. But two of them are especially close to our Lord in this moment. One leaning against his breath. One receiving this morsel. And Jesus speaking to him. I think this helps you understand something of why John refers to himself at this point. First time he does so, there will be others. This is the first time he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the author of this gospel, John 21, 20 through 24. John remains anonymous throughout the gospel. But at the end, we read that this disciple who Jesus loved, who leaned against Jesus at the feast, he is the one who's bearing witness to these things. Some have the initial reaction when they see this, think John is arrogant, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But as you look at these two disciples enjoying this closeness to Jesus, ask yourself this, what distinguishes the two? What distinguishes Judas and John? And John no doubt would tell you it is not his love for Jesus. It's Jesus' love for him. That makes the difference. It's not that John's love is superior to Judas's love, though it is. That's not ultimate. That's not the reason. Foundationally, the reason there's a difference between the two of them is Jesus' love for John. There is clearly a love here that Jesus has for Judas, but there is a distinct love he has for for those he's referred to again and again as his own. In contrast to the one he says is a son of perdition. John was chosen. Judas was not. This makes the difference. The difference isn't found in our choice where we could boast. The difference is found in God's choice. If John had referred to himself as the disciple who loved Jesus... Then he could boast. That would be arrogant. But in stunned humility, he says, I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. You see Paul do the same thing. Galatians 2.20, the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. John isn't saying something that sets himself from any other true disciple. He's saying the words that every true disciple just, they know. He loved me. Saints, if you are truly the Lord's, as we proceed through these chapters in the weeks ahead, and you see these special promises that are like morsels held out to true disciples, and you commune with our Lord in them, marvel at this, or as you by the Spirit are lifted up into the heavenly places to commune with your Lord in these promises, marvel at this, He loves you. That's what all this is testifying to. That's what this testifies to. Recall the way this chapter began. Verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loves his own. He loved them to the cross. He loves them still. He will love them forevermore. Not only does Jesus identify his betrayer with this morsel, he then instructs in verse 27, what you are going to do, do quickly. (laughs) Judas, even as a betrayer, remains the servant of Christ. Luther is reputed to have said, even the devil is God's devil. Not only Judas, but Satan remains the servant of our Lord. Verse 27, Satan entered into him. Judas' betrayal, though it troubles our Lord, does not threaten our Lord. The devil's schemes only serve the sovereign's designs. You cannot but, even in your rebellion, Rebellion, even in your sin, work towards God's purposes. But woe to those who render such service. You don't know what betrayals lie ahead. Our Lord does, and He has ordained them for good. So though the betrayal troubles your soul, as you look to that friend... Take comfort that your Lord ordains even such for good. He ordained this betrayal of a close friend for the salvation of his true friends. We do not see the tares among the wheat. Our Lord does and he has a reason why he lets them remain. With the betrayer now having left, we're tersely told, and it was night. That is not a throwaway detail. Recall the kind of light darkness imagery we've seen throughout this gospel. The darkness hates the light, it doesn't come to the light. The darkness does not overcome the light, not even now in this darkest of hours. Soon, whenever they come to arrest Jesus... He'll say, have you come out against a robber? Out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day, 
in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Luke 22, 52 through 53. It's no longer day, it's night. Remember how Jesus has been telling them? Night is coming, it's night. He's been admonishing, walk in the light while you have the light. But this hour of darkness is also the hour of glory. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 4 and 5. So with Judas gone out into the night now, this upper room, as we'll see here forward, seems to grow brighter. There will be times whenever the disciples' doubts and confusion come into view, but Christ is constantly laying before them such precious promises and reassuring them despite all their doubts. As the hour draws near, the cross is in view, even still this upper room shines bright with intimacy and communion. It's as if he doesn't have to qualify his remarks to them anymore. Judas is gone. These are his own. And he speaks freely and richly and profoundly as nowhere else. And as we proceed, and you begin to sense this, I want you to be asking yourself again and again, this week, weeks ahead, is this communion for me? Do I know this kind of intimacy with my Lord? Am I in this upper room? Or have I been sent out into the night? Am I a false hypocrite exposed? Have I just been exposed by the setting, this background that comes before the, the discourse? Have I just been exposed that none of this is for me? I'm not in the upper room. I've received the morsel of the betrayal, not these morsels of these promises. Jesus opens with three introductory statements that will be unpacked and come up again and again in the chapters ahead. First, he tells them, once again, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him, verses 31 and 32. And once again, we see that the hour of trouble is also the hour of glory. We saw this in chapter 12. There we went from glory to trouble. Jesus first said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, 1223. And then 1227, now is my soul troubled. Now we go from trouble to glory. His soul is troubled, and now he says that this is the hour for the Son of God to be glorified once again. These two are mingled. They're inseparable. The glory is because of the trouble. No trouble, no glory. By the cross, the Christ will conquer. He will Judge the world, he will cast out the ruler of this world, and he will draw all God's scattered children home. John 12, 31 and 32. The cross becomes the fullest realization of John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The profound irony is that it's when that flesh is rent and beaten and pierced that the glory is then fully displayed. 
Second, Jesus tells them he's with them only a little longer, verse 33. Six months earlier, Feast of Booths, Jesus tells the Jews who were wanting to arrest him, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Jesus repeats that to the Pharisees in 8.14, and in both instances, there is a note of judgment. I'm going, and you cannot come where I'm going. Here, that element of judgment is gone. He's preparing them. And it's because He's going to be glorified that He's leaving them, and that therefore this has a totally different connotation for them, and He can go on later to say, Things like, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you, John 16, 7. And then third, Jesus gives a new command, a command that because he's going away, it's not only seemingly more necessary, but more potent. But at first glance, the command seems to be a very old command. They're told to love one another. Jesus has been teaching that all the law is fulfilled in two commands. Love God with your all and love your neighbor as yourself. So how is this a new command? It's new because of Him. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. This takes them back to the lesson of the foot washing. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. The newness of this covenant is wrapped up, the newness of this command is wrapped up in the newness of the new covenant by Jesus' blood. Because of the glorifying of the Son, because He's going away, because He will send His Spirit, because of the blood of the new covenant, it comes with a different kind of force when He tells them to love one another now. Listen to how John unpacks this in his first letter, 1 John 2, 7-11. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Him and in you. It's a new commandment, true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. Read, because Christ is glorified. It's a new commandment in Christ because He's glorified. Because the darkness is passing away, And the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And he tells them, by such love, all will know that they are his disciples, verse 35. The world may not know Christ, but they can identify who His disciples are by this mark, their love for one another. We're to love all, even our enemies, but there is to be a a special, distinct kind of love that the saints have for one another that marks them. Galatians 6.10, 
as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. By this mark, not only may the world know who are Christ, by this mark we may know if we are Christ's. You may know if you're Christ's. John impacts something of this also, 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. This world often criticizes Christians' lack of love in general and even for one another. Christians even criticize the church's lack of love for one another. I'm afraid this speaks to something much more grave than the failure of Christians to obey God's commands. No doubt we all fail to love as we should. No doubt we have all sometimes given this world cause to doubt on occasions. But I think the gravity of that criticism of the church at large says that it's full of Judas's. Yeah, some, some of us are difficult. Sometimes personalities clash. Frankly, we're just still sinners being sanctified. There must be forgiveness. There's a command here to be obeyed. Mortification is involved, absolutely. But I just wonder if you hear this. Does this sound burdensome to you? This command to love one another. Does it sound burdensome to you? Or do you hear it and think, Father, forgive me of my lack of love. I want to love. There's no one else I'd rather be around. Or is there bitterness? Judgment, anger, resentment, envy, disregard, apathy. And if so, listen again to 1 John. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Can you sing Psalm 16.3? As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. If you've been loved by Christ as part of His bride, you love the bride that He purchased with His blood. Color, hobbies, interest, status, wealth, ethnicity, culture, heritage, education, all of those mean nothing when you say, here too is one who loves my Lord, one beloved by my Lord. They sinned against you? Have you sinned against your Lord? 
1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, of these three statements, of course, it's the second one of His going away that they latch on to. And, of course, it's Peter who can no longer contain himself. Lord, where are you going? The dialogue that follows here follows the same pattern we saw in verses 6 through 11. And if you begin to notice that and you think, here Peter is, it's the same foolish conversation that he's initiating. And you shake your head at Peter, just how many times have you initiated the same foolish conversation with your Lord? But here's the pattern. You have a question followed by a now later answer. And then you have a protest followed by a rebuke. So listen to the first instance, 13, 6 through 10. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Question. Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. So now later answer. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Protest. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Rebuke. Now, here we are again. Lord, where are you going? Question. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Now, later, answer. Protest. Lord, why can I not follow? Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Rebuke. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. (laughs) Once again, the question is good. If it was stopped with the question and the answer, this would have been excellent. Jesus begins to unpack something of the comfort that he wants them to understand. I'm going away and it's to your advantage. I'm going away and where I'm going, you cannot go Now, this gives it a totally different connotation than the way he spoke that to the Pharisees. You cannot go now, but afterward, Peter cannot, will not, should not follow Christ to the cross, but he will follow him into glory. In a little while, Jesus will leave them, but he will only leave them for a little while. But Peter, like we so often are, is so concerned about the now that he misses the later. He just wants to know about the later, the now. He just, that's all he's got in view. Don't forfeit massive afterward comforts for obsession with right now. Peter understands something of what Jesus is speaking here. I will lay down my life for you. Peter's overconfident about himself in the present 
and he's underwhelmed by what Jesus is holding out for the future. And that's why he falls in the present. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Jesus informs Peter that not only right now will you not follow, you will deny me three times. So on one side now, Jesus' introductory remarks for this discourse that will continue in the next few chapters. On one side of it, you have a disciple who will betray him. On the other side, a disciple who denies him. What makes the difference? Once again, you look in vain to find the answer in the men themselves. You have to go to something beneath that. Jesus says to Peter, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but afterward you will follow me. Listen as Jesus speaks to Peter in Luke's account. Luke twenty two thirty one through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. There's another disciple that Satan has entered into at this moment. Why that one and not Peter? He wanted Peter. But I have prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. What makes the difference is not Peter's loyalty to his Lord, but his Lord's loyalty to him. His covenant faithfulness. Jesus knows those who are given to him by his Father, and he will not lose one. And one way Jesus keeps his own is by his word, by his promises. And our confidence then is not to be placed in our present obedience and efforts, but his future grace that lies ahead of us every step of the way. True endurance is found not by looking to ourselves right now and resolving, I will die for him. True endurance is not a fruit of pride, but of faith, and faith looks to Christ. Jesus introduced this discourse with three statements. I want to close this sermon with three remarks. I want you to know three things. First, Know that betrayal will happen. Don't worry about who. Worry about you. Don't worry about who. Our Lord knows. And He not only knows, He's ordained it. It will sting, but He remains sovereign. And so draw near and commune with your Lord in His death and resurrection with a sincere heart of repentance and faith. Second, know that denial happens. I have no doubt that before the trumpet sounds, every one of us here will have denied our Lord far more than three times. Remember our hope is not our hold of our great high priest, but His hold on us. And He will not let go. He will hold us fast Cling to the Christ who clings to us. And so again I tell you, 
draw near and commune with your Lord in His death and resurrection with a true heart of repentance and faith. Third, know that Christ is glorified. By His cross, He is conquered. He is not with us, and yet He is because He's ascended to the right hand of the Father from whence He has sent His Spirit who indwells us, is present with us, such that Christ indwells us, and He can say He's with us always to the end of the age. And so again I tell you, draw near and commune with your Lord in His death and His resurrection with a sincere heart of repentance and faith. In their hearts, I wonder how often these disciples would return to the upper room and draw up on these promises. We can't know. We can only ourselves come to this upper room frequently and commune with Him anew in repentance and faith. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Father, Right now I plead, save Judas, restore Peter, speak your promises, holding them out as precious morsels as all of us come as John leaning against your breast. Strengthen us, keep us. We just, light of how glorious and beautiful Christ is in this chapter and all that lies ahead, we cry out, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Oh, to draw near to the side of our Lord now, to hear Him speak, to hear His truth and His promises, to know He's with us. May this turn the dark sinner's heart towards the saving grace and light of Christ. May this turn our failing, fumbling hearts afresh and anew to you to walk in obedience and faith for the glory of your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.